is the Cloud Hub Podcast, your launchpad for Amazon Web Services. Welcome to the Cloud and Out podcast. My name is Andreas. And my name is Michael. We are brothers and freelancers focusing 100% on Amazon Web Services. We do technical coaching, for example, for teams that start their journey with AWS. And we do infrastructure bootstrapping, typically based on our infrastructure as code templates for our clients worldwide. And every other week, we discuss a topic related to AWS in this podcast. One of us prepares the topic, which is not known to the other one. And so, Michael, what is the subject for today? Yeah, today we are going to talk about the available messaging options on AWS. So things like SQS, but also Kinesis. We are looking into the MQ service and also um, into more niche services like the IoT service. So basically, it's a overview of all the options, and I will compare them and I will highlight um, the like typical scenarios where you will use one uh, and why it makes sense to to use it. So what are the like the the pros and the cons of each service? So that's the overall goal of today. Oh, that sounds interesting. So that's especially for architects and developers who plan to design a new system on AWS. Uh, so that they have an overview of the available messaging options. Cool. Um, so before we start, um, I want to say, so this is the episode 22 of the Cloud and Out podcast, and we're recording this on June 19th, 2020. And there is a blog post related um, to this podcast episode, which appeared first uh, on the CloudCraft blog. So CloudCraft is um, a cool web application that you can use to draw architecture diagrams for AWS and I would say they look special they look very cool and so this is a, a cool way to to yeah to visualize what you are building on AWS and another thing before we start so um, I'm really happy to announce um, that we have released chapter two for the rapid docker on AWS video course so we have released Rapid Docker on AWS, the ebook, last year. The goal is to give you a fast way to deploy your web application Dockerized on AWS. So you learn everything you need to know about how to Dockerize an application. So we have examples for PHP, Java, Node, um, Python, and so on. And you learn how to Dockerize your existing application and then how to deploy that to AWS um, in a professional way, which means by using infrastructure as code and setting up a production-ready and secure environment. And um, we have a video course, um, or we're doing a video course for that as well. We are in the pro progress of um, uh, creating that. Um, so chapter one is already available um, as the video course. And since yesterday, Michael, Chapter two is available as well. Um, so maybe can you talk us through what's the uh, learning goals of chapter two, which is now available? Yeah, Andrea. So in chapter two, we um, take the existing application of the learner and we turn it into a Dockerized application. So um, for example, if this is a PHP application, we create two Docker um, images, one for Nginx, the other one for the PHP container, and then we spin everything up locally using Docker Compose. So we uh, create a Docker Compose file, make sure that everything is configured correctly. 
And then last but not least, we deploy the whole thing to AWS. So that's kind of uh, the, the goal of chapter two, uh, dockerizing and deploying your own application to AWS. Wow, that sounds very cool. So that's basically everything you need to know to get started with Docker. Cool. Um, so you will find a link to Rapid Docker on AWS, the ebook and the video course uh, in the show notes. And we really highly recommend that um, if you have an application that is not, not yet Dockerized and not yet running on AWS, um, that's very a good way to get started quickly. Okay, so that's enough um, about all the announcements. So Michael, then let's jump into the topic, messaging on AWS. What's the first service that we will have a look at? Yeah, so I think before we are really looking into the options, I will uh, just explain why this is an uh, interesting topic at all. Um, and the, the, the motivation for it, um, doing this is that we can process messages asynchronously, which means on the one side, we have the producer of a message and the producer sends the message to the messaging system. And on the other side of the messaging system, we have the consumer and the consumer can uh, read the messages uh, in at different speed and a different time than they were produced. Okay, so that is, I, I, I assume that this is especially important when you have a microservice architecture where you have multiple services that need to interact with each other and you want to decouple them to be able to deploy them independently and also to have a little bit of a buffer in between to handle traffic spikes and stuff. Yeah, so I agree. So basically, it's it's a good idea. So if you can, you should always make the communication between two systems asynchronously, if possible, because then you can... Um, so for example, you can... So if there are spikes in the system, like one system creates lots of messages, but the other one is not as fast in processing them, then the messaging system is kind of a buffer, as you mentioned. But it also makes things like deployments much easier because you can, for a certain amount of time, completely stop the consumer side um, roll out the update and then start processing the messages again. Also, in case of failure, you have some kind of uh, buffer that you can use to fix the problem without anyone noticing things. Um, so that's um, always a good idea. So if you can, then I would always uh, prefer an asynchronously um, system over a synchronous one. Yeah, I think there's something else that comes to my mind is it also makes scaling a lot easier. So we all have the goal to scale our infrastructure based on the capacity we really need on AWS to reduce costs because, yeah, that's really the, the big benefit of the cloud, right? But scaling is not that easy if you have a request response model. So if you have a load balancer and you need to re respond immediately to each incoming request, it gets much, much easier if you have a small kind of queue or messaging system in between um, than scaling the um, infrastructure for the workers is, is much easier. Yeah, I agree. So let's start with the options, Andreas. So the first service that I will uh, have a look at is um, SQS, the simple queue service. And that's a service that probably lots of our listeners already know. And SQS comes in two flavors. So there are so-called standard queues. So this is what we had from the beginning. And then there are FIFO queues. And we will talk about the FIFO queues in a minute. So let's focus on the standard queues for now. So standard queues are, um, that's basically the most convenient option you can dream of. So that was one of the first serverless offerings that, a that AWS had. And uh, at this time, it wasn't called serverless because an SQS queue is 
you, you just create the queue, so there's nothing to uh, administrate. Um, so you can send as many messages as you like to those queues, and you can read as many messages as you like, and they will be queued for up to 14 days. So that's kind of the, uh, the limitations of the system. The messages are only stored for up to 14 days. Um, so the key thing to understand here is that a message is intended to be consumed by only one process. So you send a message and only one receives the message. So that's the, the overall goal. Um, but there are uh, two kind of um, surprises when you work with SQS. So the first surprise for many people is that SQS does not preserve the order of messages. So if you send three messages into a queue, um, it is not guaranteed that the consumer side will read them in the same order. Um, so that's something that you have to keep in mind. So if order is important for you, then the standard queues are not a good choice. Yeah, so, so I think the thing that we have to mention here is um, SQS does its best <laughs> to preserve the order, but it's not guaranteed. So you cannot really rely on that. That's, that's really an important uh, thing, yeah. Yeah, that's right. And the second surprise is that um, a message may be delivered more than once. And this is usually called at least once delivery. So what are the reasons for this? And I can think of two kind of different, or you can think of this problem in two different perspectives. So the first perspective is from the producer, producer side. So what if the producer wants to send a message, but you get an error back from the API uh, or from like the network stack? So there's basically no, uh, or you, you cannot really know if the message was actually sent or not. So if there's an error, um, like a timeout, you, you actually don't know. So if you retry, then the message will be sent twice because there is no way of deduplication of messages in standard queues. So that's the first reason why something could be delivered more than once because the producer actually produced it twice. And then if you look from the other perspective, the consumer, then the consumer can also fail. Uh, so you read a message from SQS, then you do your work. And if you are done with doing your work in SQS, you have to confirm that you are done by deleting the message. And in between this time, things can go wrong and also a timeout can be hit. And if you do not delete the message uh, after or within the timeout period, then the message will be uh, become available for consumption again. So this is cool for retries, but it also implies that um, a message could be received more than once. So the only way to deal with this problem is that the consumer side implementation has to be idempotent. So no matter if you process the message once or more than once, the result has to be the same. So usually this can be achieved by some ID that is generated by the producer that is part of the message. And with this ID, you can ensure that the, um, the work is only done once because this is kind of your primary key in the database or things like this. Yeah, so, so that's, that's very cool, a very cool summary. So uh, I have something to add to SQS. I think SQS is a really powerful service. I like to add this to architectures that I've built um, very much. Because I think the, the main advantage is um, it scales um, automatically. You can send as many messages as you want, um, no matter of any spikes or anything. Um, and um, yeah, you have to guarantee that the message will be delivered. So that is maybe something that, that we haven't talked about yet. Um, so you have to guarantee that sometime uh, a worker will pick up the message. So you have that 
um, this is uh, something that is guaranteed. And um, maybe back to um, SQS is not guaranteeing the order and it's not guaranteeing uh, that each message is only uh, processed once. So uh, I think it's really important to uh, have that in mind when building a system based on SQS. Uh, I think it's not a good idea um, to say, okay, um, so it's very unlikely that that happens. So because if you ask, for example, AWS support or maybe your solution architect from AWS and you might ask them, so how likely is it um, that um, it happens that, I don't know, the order is not um, guaranteed or um, that the message is delivered more than once? And they might say um, it's not very likely that this will happen. But I think it's important to know that uh, things will go wrong and uh, your, your order will be, your messages will be out of order and uh, it, the, order, the messages will be delivered more than once. And I think it's not a very good idea to ignore that fact. So you have, really have to build that into your system. You have to make sure, as you said, to process messages in an idempotent way uh, or you have to just think about how you can work around that limitation. Uh, it, had, it really has to be <laughs> thought of. You cannot just uh, use it otherwise. Um, uh, so that is important. But I think when you do that, uh, you get a really powerful service. Um, I think another thing, Michael, that, that, is, that is very um, useful when building uh, with SQS is, so I built um, a system that um, schedules jobs to fetch data from various APIs to collect this, the data and to, yeah, to, to prepare the data for analytics later. And uh, what I like about SQS there is um, when I do processing of jobs to fetch data from third-party APIs, a lot can go wrong. Yeah? So I can, my worker picks up the, the, the job from the SQS queue and then starts fetching data from an API, from a third-party API. And a lot of stuff can go wrong. The API could not be responsible. The data could not be available, what, whatever. And I think a, a very interesting feature of SQS is um, that you can you, ha you, you can really get um, uh, a retry mechanism built in, so you can configure that a message will be redelivered uh, if it does not complete within a certain amount of time. Uh, and by by using that mechanism, you you can really easily build a system that just retries automatically, and you you increase the resilience of your system a lot by doing so. So I think that is uh, maybe an, another interesting. Um, feature of SQS. Yeah, and um, the last thing to add here is that the pricing is also pretty nice because you pay per message, basically. Um, so if there's no messages uh, um, so, uh, transferred between producers and consumers, then there are no charges associated with such queues, which is pretty nice in uh, uh, serverless applications. So I will jump into the next service, and I already mentioned this. Um, SQS comes with um, standard queues and FIFO queues. So let's see what they can do. So the FIFO queue, um, so FIFO stands for first in, first out. And this kind of implies that this kind of queue guarantees order. And that's exactly what they are uh, designed to do. Um, and besides the guaranteed order, they also provide a way to ensure that uh, a message is not produced twice. So on the producer side, you can ensure by providing a, um, a ID. And if you send a message with the same ID twice, it will only be uh, published once. 
So that's pretty cool. So you can now implement uh, retries on the, on the, on the, on the producer side uh, without the problem that the message will be uh, produced twice. So remember, this was a problem with the standard queues. So this sounds pretty cool. And if um, this was everything, um, everyone should use FIFO queues um, because they are actually better. Um, but the big problem here is that um, FIFO queues can only handle 300 messages per second or uh, 3,000 messages if you send them in batches of 10. So basically you can do f uh, 300 write operations. So that's a big limitation. And this limitation was not existing for the standard queues at all. So for standard queues, you can send as much as you like and you can read as much as you like. And that's not the case for FIFO queues. So um, how does it work? Um, if you want to consume the messages in order, the other kind of problem that you have is that you can actually only consume them with a single consumer. Because if you have more than one consumer, then you can still, like, while the consumers are working, they could uh, one could be faster than the other. And then the orders again, uh, no longer maintained. So... The trick here is, um, if you still want to have multiple consumers, is that you can create so-called uh, groups of messages. And within such a group, the order is guaranteed. Um, and then it kind of gets problematic again. So if you want to have a total order, order of your queue, you can only use a single consumer. And if you can relax this a little bit, for example, uh, you could maybe uh, use a group for each customer or things like this and you only need an order within a single customer then you can use such groups and then uh, one consumer is kind of responsible for a single group and then you can have parallelization um, but still uh, maintain the order at least within a group of messages so in that case michael does the worker need to know which group of messages it needs to fetch or is that handled automatically you, you don't have to know about the group Okay, so I have never used uh, SKS FIFO, Michael, but I have a question. Um, is, it, is there a difference uh, from a price perspective compared to the standard queue? Um, that's a good question, Andreas. Um, and I have to be honest, I don't know. Okay. <laughs> so we, we have to double check this. Yeah, okay. Um, I'm not sure, yeah. Okay, so, but I think from, from what I... So, so my, my mind model about SQS FIFO is it is less, it is less of a distributed system Uh, as the standard queues. So that allows um, SQS FIVO to communicate between multiple workers, multiple nodes that basically that system uh, consists of. Um, but that also limits the maximum throughput here. So I think SQS standard queue is a really highly distributed system that you can send as many messages as you want to, which comes with some limitations. Um, and FIVO... Um, Uh, it's not that distributed. It's probably distributed among availability zones, but but not uh, among I don't know hundreds of nodes. And um, but you can get the limitation that you cannot send more than three hundred or three thousand messages um, per second, which is in some cases probably fine. But in others, um, yeah, we probably cannot really plan with that limitation. Um, one one other thing that comes to my mind, I assume that I can create more than one SQS FIFO queue. So I could use, uh, I don't know, two or three or 100 SQS FIFO queues uh, if I need to um, work around that limitation of uh, the 300 or 3,000 messages per second. Is that correct? 
Yeah, that's correct. So you could kind of create your own uh, partition logic yeah. or sharding logic. Um, but again, I mean, it gets very complicated. Sure. Um, regarding your pricing question, I just checked this out. So the FIFO queues are 25% more expensive than the standard queues, um, like from a message perspective. So they are slightly more expensive, but not significant. Okay. And I think overall pricing with SQS, at least from the projects that I have done with SQS, pricing was never an issue. <laughs> so it was never a problem to send, I don't know, millions or whatever uh, messages over SQS from a price perspective. I, know, I don't know what's your experience with that, but I, uh, I never had a, a real problem with the pricing model there. Yeah, so that that's also what I see. So the the pricing usually makes a lot of sense compared with the price to uh, process the messages. So it's not a like significant part of your bill. Yeah. Probably also compared to the other options that we will have a look now. Yeah, so it only gets more expensive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, basically. But one exception is the next service SNS. So that's kind of the same uh, than SQS, but then it gets more expensive. Yeah. Okay. So what is um, SNS? So that's the simple notification service, and. The key thing to understand here is that with SQS, you send a message, a message is produced, and it is rece uh, received by one consumer um, if things are not going wrong, so if there are no retries. And SNS is completely different. So with SNS, you publish a message, and then all the consumers will receive the message. So it's a kind of fan-out or publish-subscribe system. And also, the message is not persisted. So if you are not... Um, subscribed to the topic as a consumer and um, you will miss the message so you cannot subscribe afterwards and then receive the message or something like this so there's no like persistent subscription or things like this so if you're not there for consumption then you will miss the message um, the big benefit is that is like sql standard queues it's kind of a zero operational effort system so there is nothing to do you just create a topic and that's it And it, you can send as many messages as you like and you can subscribe uh, and then the, the system will make sure that um, it works. Um, again, um, what are the limitations here? Um, so it is kind of the same limitations than with SQS. So um, it's a uh, at least once delivery system and there is no order guarantee at all. And if you Uh, have no subscribers on a topic then it's kind of a uh, death null or black hole you can just send as many messages as you like but no one will uh, receive them so keep this in mind that this is a little bit more important here so sqs is kind of a way to buffer messages if things go wrong with sns if things go wrong then they are lost or you have to implement other mechanisms to make sure that you uh, uh, kind of persist the messages so um maybe one uh, interesting uh, fact here is that a SNS consumer can be many things. It could be a Lambda function, um, it can be an SQS queue, um, it can also be an HTTP endpoint, so they will trigger your HTTP endpoint or HTTPS endpoint. Uh, it can also be, it can also send, and this is what SNS makes a little bit uh, confusing, you can also send emails and you can also send SMS with it. So it's, there's, I think there's, at the time where SNS was created and where this was added, they kind of had some like overlap like the the system does lots of things including sending sms which doesn't make much sense for a system that can also send messages to sqs but um when we talk about messaging systems then just think of sns as a publish subscribe uh, system so any questions andreas or can we go on no i think it's a it's also a very basic service and you will kindly when you so it's it's very likely that you are using SNS to, I don't know, forward CloudWatch alarms or 
um, in, in many cases, um, yeah, architectures on AWS use SNS in a way. Um, not in all cases, uh, SNS is the, the really the main messaging um, component, but it's a, it's a very interesting concept. And uh, I think uh, also interesting is that you can configure retries with SNS as well. So you can define what happens in case SNS cannot deliver a message and how often it will retry. Uh, and what happens if if, the FN, if SNS gives up <laughs> on delivering a message? You can also um, persist that message if you want um, for I don't know failure analytics or um, re resending that message later or what have you. Yeah, that's that's maybe interesting as well. Yeah, really cool service, basic one, but but I think the simple services on AWS so um, SQS, SNS, and it's also S3, the simple storage service. Those are all very cool building blocks for architectures, I would say, um, because they are so simple. They are very powerful as well. Yeah, that's right. So let's talk about um, the next service, Andreas. And this is um, Amazon Kinesis Data Streams. So a few years before, this was just uh, Amazon Kinesis, and now it's called Data Streams because there are other streams as well and also other like capabilities like analytics built into the service. So um, Kinesis basically provides um, yeah, everything that's needed to do real-time data analytics. But in this um, episode here, we focus on the data streams. So what are data streams? Um, so data streams are a uh, log of messages. And if you write messages or send messages to it, you will append them at the end. So that's the only option that's available. Um, and when you read a message, then you do not delete messages from this stream. You can only basically remember the point in the stream that you have seen last. And from this point on, you can read the next messages. So it's kind of a like a big uh, a sequence of messages. And if you start reading them, for example, from the beginning... Then you get a batch of messages and uh, it also returns the next position in the stream. And then you can read from this next position. Um, and this is called like the, the iterator. So you, you, you iterate through all the messages. And if you like, you can at any time start from the beginning again. Yes. Um, so if you think about data structure, it's basically a sorted list. And you iterate over that sorted list, um, for example, from the beginning uh, to the end. Yeah, and it's sorted by time, but you have to be a little bit careful. Um, and we will talk about order in a minute. Um, okay, so one limitation that could be an issue is that Kinesis does not store your messages forever. Um, it will drop them after uh, seven days. So it's configurable. You can define um, the, um, the time from one to seven days, but it's not possible to keep them for longer than seven days. And the interesting information here is that Kinesis does keep order of messages, but only what Kinesis calls a shard. So what is a shard? A shard can handle up to one megabytes of second of data or up to 1000 messages per second. So that's the, the restrictions of a shard. And if you need more capacity in your stream, you have to add shards. But only within a shard you have order. So basically when you send a message and Kinesis calls this a record, but that's kind of the same thing. 
So when you send a message to Kinesis, you specify an, or you can specify a, a key that Kinesis uses to assign the shard. And as long as this key is the same, the message will always land on the same shard. So for example, uh, in Marbot, in our um, chatbot that works with Slack and Microsoft Teams, um, where you can send uh, all kinds of alerts from AWS to your uh, chat window, we use Kinesis Streams um, to, for all the processing. So if a alert arrives or if a API uh, hook from Slack or Microsoft Teams arrives, then we put this message to a Kinesis Stream and we use the team ID in Slack and in uh, Microsoft um, Teams, we use the tenant ID to assign the shard. So with this, we have guarantee that for a single team, we have exact order of all the messages. So nothing can um, get out of order in, inside a team. And that's totally fine for us because we don't need order across teams because messages only operate on a single team. Yeah, but so and, and also, Michael, but on the other side, it also limits the number of messages per team to, what was it, 1,000 messages per second, right? Yes, per second, yeah. Yeah, but, that's a lot. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a lot. And we actually have throttling before on the API side, and we don't allow 1,000 uh, API calls per second for a team. So that's not a, that's not a problem for us. Um, but yeah, if, if, if you have, or if you expect more than 1,000 messages, then the team is not a good idea for splitting up and sharding, so you have to come up with something else. So in our case, it could be the channel ID and things like this. Um, so that's about Kinesis. So let's look at um, to at, at at the problems of the. Uh, so what what exactly what kind of guarantee is provided when you read like of delivery guarantee? And I would say that's also a kind of at least one system because on the producer side, there is no way. Um, to uh, avoid resending the same message twice. So if you get an error from the Kinesis API, and if you retry, you there's no way for you to know that the message was only uh, sent once. It could be already in the stream. And so this implies that the consumer has to, again, be implemented in an item-potent way, the same way as for SQS queues and also for SNS. Yeah, which might be easier if you have at least the order guarantee. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's the system basically adds order, the order guarantee compared to SQS. Um, and the downside is that you now have to care about the shards because um, you are responsible for adding and removing shards. Um, so that's kind of your problem. And this was not a task that was available uh, if you use SQS queues. So if you really need the order, uh, you can buy this guarantee by caring about shards. Um, and so you can uh, uh, yeah, think, or you can kind of try to avoid it, but if, if you really need the order, then that's, I think, a good idea. So, so basically from a scaling perspective, that means I can add as many shards as I want. Is that correct? Um, so I'm not sure if you can add as many as you want. So there are definitely uh, quotas and they can be increased. Um, I'm not sure what the exact upper limit is, but you can add lots of shards. So I think, yeah, so definitely 500 and more is possible. Yeah. So the idea is that you can scale horizontally by adding more shards to the system. Um, so there is no limit as you have with SQS FIFO, for example. Um, but um, yeah, you're doing it by adding shards and um Then maybe what's interesting, Michael, can you talk us through the pricing model uh, of Kinesis? 
Yeah, so that's a good point, Andreas, and I, 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 I forgot to talk about this. So with Kinesis, you you have two dimensions um, where you pay for. So one is you pay for the short hour. So for each short that you provision, you pay a fee per hour. So this is independent of if you are using the system or not. So there's a base cost basically for the system. And then you also pay for the API calls. So um, it's... I mean, it's more inconvenient than SQS pricing because you have to you have this baseline fee, and it's it's I think it's a shot is around five dollars if I remember this correctly. Um, so it's yeah, it's not um, um, or it's not a problem if the system is using uh, or transferring data all time. But if this is a test system, if you create one for every pull request, then this can easily add up um, and and could be a problem. Yeah. And another question that comes to my mind is, so I talked about how SQS or how it can handle failures with SQS or so the retry thing and everything. So how do I do that with uh, Kinesis? So what happens if a worker for some reason cannot process a message? What happens then? Um, yeah, so there are uh, multiple options. So I have to correct my pricing um, estimation. It is not $5, it's $10 per month. So sorry for that. So it's twice as, as much. Okay, so what happens if, if things go wrong on the on the consumer, on the reading side? And um, so this depends on the implementation of the consumer. So if you, for example, connect the Lambda function to the uh, Kinesis stream, the default behavior is just to retry and retry and retry and retry forever. So basically, in the moment where there is an error in your uh, logic, um, the, the processing stops at this point in the stream and it will retry um, for, in the worst case, It takes seven days until this message is deleted that you cannot process because of some error. Um, but, I mean, the better option would be that you fix the problem uh, as soon as possible and then things will continue to work. So this is one option and that was um, the kind of only option that was available until uh, a few months ago. And now you have additional options. So if you uh, read from a Kinesis uh, stream or to be more precise from a shard, You can specify the batch size. So you can say, okay, give me 50 records at once or maybe only uh, 10 or something like this. But basically, if things go wrong, you so there could be multiple messages in the batch mm -hmm. and you, you don't necessarily know which message causes the error. So it could be that there are 50 messages in the batch and like message number 26 has the problem. So each time the system retries, you will retry the whole batch. So not only starting from the message that failed, but you will try all the 25 messages that worked before. So if your implementation is not that important, you will run into big issues because you will retry them a lot of times. Um, and now uh, Kinesis has this, um, or the, on the consumer side, you have the option to, um, for example, reduce the, um, the, the message size if you read from uh, the stream so that you can kind of uh, try to figure out where the problem is in the stream. So reduce number of messages each time each time you retry to make sure that you get to the point where the problem arises and then you can also add um, a functionality where you basically move a record out of or you you don't move it out of the stream but you you push it into another system like sqs as well and then you continue and you mm -hmm. basically skip the message in the stream but it's still in the stream but you skip it when processing it and then mm -hmm. you push it into an sqs queue for example for Uh, debugging uh, purposes. Is this feature only available when I use Lambda, the Lambda connectivity between Kinesis and Lambda, or is it 
um, an API feature of Kinesis that I can use with other workers as well. So again, that's a good question, Andreas. <laughs> so I must admit that today there are many questions that I cannot answer. Um, I'm not 100% sure, but there's this... Um, so I, I definitely... Uh, so it, it should be possible to implement this on your own as well with the API. So there's no magic involved when, when Lambda consumes the messages. Um, but I assume you have to do some uh, something. But you could also use... Like there is the consumer library, the Kinesis consumer library available. Mm -hmm. So this is like a... On top of the API and SDK, it's kind of a mm -hmm. like more convenient way and it manages resharding and all kinds of problems that arise mm -hmm. and i assume that this library can help you as well yeah. but um, it's, it's probably not a feature of sure. the kinesis uh, service it's a feature of the lambda integration and you can build it your own or maybe use the uh, sdk for that as well okay yeah makes sense yeah so at least that's my um that's my understanding of of how um things work yeah okay cool yeah that sounds interesting so yeah so kinesis is um so it has its limitations, um, but I think, um, yeah, we both used it in various projects and it was always um, a very helpful building block for an architecture as well. Um, with its, yeah, it, it has its guarantees and its its pros. It comes with some limitations, of course, as well. And that's, that's always something you have to um, decide on when building an architecture, which building block fits best for your needs. Is order really an important thing or, um, yeah, or can you live with, um, with SQS um, and so on. And I think that maybe compared to SQS FIFO, um, the Kinesis um, service uh, has the, the, the advantage that it's easier to scale it because you, yeah, you can just add a shard, but the clients that interact with, with the API um, or the management of the shards and everything just happens within the service um, from a sending messages and receiving messages point of view. Uh, if you want to do the same with SQS FIVO, you have to create another SQS queue and then you have to make sure that workers know about the queue and everything. So with, with Kinesis, you get a single endpoint that um, consumers and producers can connect to. That's that's what I would say is the, the big difference here. What do you think? Yeah, I, I agree mostly. So it's like from the producer side, it's co completely transparent how many shards exist. So you just send the message. Mm -hmm. But from the consumer side, so if you're not using, like, for example, the Lambda integration or the consumer library, so if you really interact with the API directly, mm -hmm. then you have to know about the shards. Ah, okay. And if shards are added, you have to act accordingly. And if shards are removed, you have to act accordingly as well. Ah, but okay. I, I don't know many people who use the API directly for consuming messages mm. because you either use the Lambda integration or you use the uh, the consumer library. Yeah. Um, everything else is, I think, there's it's very error-prone, yeah. Okay. Okay, cool. Okay, Michael. So what's the next service? Yeah. So the next service is kind of uh, similar from the uh, idea how it works. And it's a managed uh, uh, Kafka um, service. So it's called Amazon Managed Streaming for Apache Kafka <laughs> or MSK for short. Um, Very cool so naming. It's, yeah. So it's a Kafka as a service, basically. Um, you get a cluster and like RDS kind of thing. So they, they manage it for you. Um, and Kafka itself, um, I would say, works in a similar way than Kinesis data streams. The only, uh, I think, for at least from my point of view, the big difference is that um, there is the seven days data retention uh, limitation in Kinesis does not apply to Kafka if you uh, 
don't configure it. So with Kafka, you could, in theory, keep messages forever. I mean, you have to provide the storage capacity to do this, but it's possible. Um, the other benefits are, I mean, it's open source. So you could use it outside of AWS. You can run it locally. And, and for developers, that's that's might easier. Um, and it also scales uh, horizontally. So you can add what Kafka calls a broker. And um, you create uh, a topic that's kind of the stream in Kinesis. And a topic is a partition. So instead of shards, you have now partitions. But you still have the problem of adding partitions, uh, removing partitions. So the whole management is definitely more complicated compared to Kinesis. Um, but um, yeah, you get um, the, the benefit that you can persist data forever if, if you like and can afford it. Um, so that's, I think, one of the only benefits. I mean, the, the biggest problems that I see is that there's no good integration into the AWS ecosystem. So for example, a Kinesis stream, you can attach a Lambda function for processing. And that's not possible with uh, managed streaming for Apache Kafka. So it, it only works if you have EC2 or, or containers that, that interact with the Kafka API. And, and you really have to understand how Kafka works. And I can tell, or like from, uh, so I was working as a software developer before I, I started my, uh, the AWS um, stuff here. And it's not so easy to really get this right. So the Kafka uh, interface is not uh, super easy to understand and you have to get the details right. Um, but yeah, it's it's a complicated system and if you understand it fully, then it's it's definitely a cool thing. But um, it's it's much more complicated to use than Kinesis data streams. So that's what I can say. Yeah. So one thing, uh, Michael, um, what's, what's interesting, I think, is that Kinesis um, did not catch up with that feature that you can specify a retention period uh, of longer than seven days. <laughs> so that's, that's, that's really interesting because I don't think that that should be too much of a problem from, AW, from an AWS perspective. Um, but it's yeah, interesting that they didn't, um, that they do not move. It seems they, they do not really move forward with Kinesis a lot. So it just, it's there, it works, but I, I haven't seen major feature announcements for, for a long time now. Interesting. Um, uh, one other thing, Michael, I think um, from our experience, um, so we were involved in a project where um, we built up a Kafka cluster, um, the infrastructure as code for a Kafka cluster. And as with all distributed services, um, there is a lot to learn about a system uh, that you can really operate a distributed system at a production level great. Um, so I think what's really cool with um, Amazon MSK is that you get that um, as a managed service by AWS and you don't have to do what AWS calls the heavy lifting um, for a Kafka cluster because I remember that it was there was really a lot that you need to think about. Um, so how do you do rolling updates of the cluster? How do you make sure um, the different partitions um, come up again after you replacing a node and all that stuff? So I think um, having that as a managed service really helps a lot um, to, yeah, to focus on building, your, uh, building a problem for you, a solution for your problem instead of yeah, building a complex infrastructure on AWS. Yeah, I agree. Um, so one other like uh, kind of funny uh, thing here is that um, Apache Kafka requires a uh, Apache Zookeeper for the um, kind of like assigning partitions, for example, to topics and things like this. So all the management data um, is is in a Zookeeper, um, and a Zookeeper is also used to make sure that all the nodes have the same understanding of of how the world looks like. 
And if you only require a Zookeeper cluster, and then you could also use um, MSK. You can create an MSK cluster and basically only use the Zookeeper nodes. <laughs> so if you if you want to have a managed Zookeeper, then you can also use the same service. Um, but it, it might be a little bit uh, expensive. I don't know. Depends on how much you want to spend. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it's possible. I remember Zookeeper. Really, every time I have to set up Zookeeper <laughs> for for one of our clients, I really. That's really one of the distributed systems. Um, I'm, I really have a lot of respect for because it's so hard to get that right. We, I spent so many times debugging problems with Zookeeper. It started 10 years ago when we used it first. And it's still nowadays, um, so many times I have crazy uh, situations where the data that is coming back from Zookeeper is no more consistent and you start debugging um, that open source project. So. Uh, if you can avoid managing Zookeeper on your own, that's really what I've learned <laughs> a lot. Yeah. Okay. So la last uh, last um, point uh, about MSK um, the pricing. So you pay per node in the cluster, uh, no matter if you use it or not. So um, that's kind of a baseline cost, and you also pay for the provision storage, no matter if you use it or not. Mm -hmm. So it's it's completely different pricing model than what we saw before, where we had lots of pricing based on messages. So with MSK, you pay per hour of the size of the cluster, and that's it. Use it or not, it doesn't matter. AWS will uh, still charge you for the nodes. So let's go on with the next um, with the next system, um, and this is called Amazon MQ. Um, and this is, um, I mean, you could also call this uh, Amazon Managed Queuing for Apache Active MQ, so then it would be consistent with the previous name. So it's basically <laughs> um, a, a Active MQ as a service. So mm -hmm. Active MQ is a message broker, and um, it it works like in a similar way than you deploy RDS databases. So you can have a kind of highly uh, HA uh, mode where two uh, nodes are deployed in different zones, and then the data is um replicated because they use or i have to go into more details here but like in the in the high available high available setup they use an efs file system underneath for persistence and that's how they make sure that if the one node fails the node in the other zone uh takes over and the data is in sync so they they share the data over efs um which is um a problem uh, if you look at the the message rate that you can send uh, because that's pretty low. Uh, so you can expect to send 80 messages per second um, if you use the HA mode of act uh, of uh, Amazon MQ. Is it for the whole system? Yes. Yes. Oh, so it's okay. only two nodes. That's that's the system. Okay. Um, so um, there's a, uh, a active broker and then there is the standby broker and you can send 80 messages per second to the active broker. That's it. Um, um, can I ask a question? So do you know that? Is it the, the failover from the active broker to the standby broker? How does that happen? Is it similar to RDS with a DNS name? Or? Yeah, I can, like, I can remember from using ActiveMQ, and this is not related to the MQ service, that in the connection string, you actually specified both brokers, uh, and then the client figured out which one is the active one. That's correct. I remember that as well. Because we used ActiveMQ many, many years ago, um, when um, working in a team where we built a microservice architecture and their ActiveMQ was basically the broker for the messages between those services. Uh, I remember that as well. Yeah, it's correct. The clients um, were able, capable to do so. Yeah, but yeah. Okay, interesting. Cool. So yeah, what, what else is important about ActiveMQ, Michael? Yeah, so I think the 
um, like a few important aspects to add. So I mentioned that you can use the EFS as a storage backend, and this is you don't really see this. It's it's managed by um, the MQ service, but it's backed by EFS, the Elastic File System. Um, you can choose other storage layers like uh, EBS, but then you don't have um, data replication, uh, and you can also use like in-memory if you like. So don't if you cannot tolerate losing messages like once they are persisted then the only option is efs and i think that's the the the, the biggest or the the use case where you use uh, active mq if you like if you really want to be sure that this message once it is persisted and the transaction is committed you will not lose the message and that's the the big benefit here that this is a system like active mq can be part of a distributed transaction so if you have a relational database that also supports this and more mostly all of the databases do and then you can write something into your database you can write something into the stream and then you have a two-phase commit and both of the systems will uh, commit the message and you will not end up with a system where the database entry is made but the message is not sent into the queue so that's pretty cool and the limitation is that you can do this only 80 times per second Okay. Um, so, uh, Michael, uh, I, I didn't understand that 100%, so maybe one question about it. So, does that mean I can, if I have microservices, I can basically have a transaction that spans multiple microservices, uh, which also involves persisting data to a database. Is that correct? Uh, yes, I wouldn't say that you can have a transaction that spans multiple microservices, but if a microservice, or it doesn't, it doesn't matter, if a service, um, like in one go you write something into a database and you want to send a message to a uh, queue, then you can start a distributed transaction and you write into the database and the, da the database uh, says, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm okay with committing this. Then your queuing system says, okay, I'm co okay with committing this. And then you send the, the, the final commit to, and both systems will commit the message. That's kind of the two-phase commit kind of approach. So it's two involved parties here. So, mm -hmm. And this also works like you can start from reading the message from the queue into the database, into another queue. So all kinds of possibilities are um, uh, available. Um, so other benefits of ActiveMQ, um, it supports a wide range of protocols. So if you are in the Java space, then JMS is uh, more or less the, 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 the way to consume messages from queues. Um, but it also supports AMQP, MQTT, uh, Stomp, OpenWire, and a few other protocols. So it's pretty uh, pretty flexible in terms of who can connect to it. Um, and the the last thing that I want to add, um, or not the last thing, but there the are two more things. So pricing works the same as with uh, the managed Kafka. So you pay per, per cluster and for the storage. Um, but you only pay for the consumed storage here because it's EFS. Um, the other thing is that if you need more than 80 messages per second, then you can create what ActiveMQ calls a network of brokers. And then things get uh, more complicated. Like then you are, um, you care about partitions. Like as, as you care about partitions, you then care about uh, your network of brokers. But it's possible to increase the limit uh, of 80 messages per second if you have multiple brokers in a network of brokers. Cool stuff. So um, is there any other messaging service on AWS, Michael, or is, is it... Is it those that we talked about? Yes, yeah, so I have one more. Um, and this is kind of, I would call this like a niche uh, service for uh, messaging. And it's IoT Core. And IoT Core uh, provides a scalable MQTT broker. 
So uh, whenever you need an MQTT broker, then you can use IoT Core, no matter if you need IoT or not. Um, the, there is no order uh, guarantee of messages here again. And um, MQTT has uh, quality of service levels like um, at most once and at least once and also exactly once, but uh, IoT Core only um, supports at most and at least once, which means, which means that you either receive the message once or more than once or you receive it zero or one time. Uh, so that's kind of the two uh, options you can choose from. Um, the uh, cool thing of IoT Core is that you can uh, define rules and then those rules are applied. So for example, you can say, if a message is sent to this topic or this topic prefix, then trigger Lambda function or push this message into DynamoDB or push it into uh, an S3 bucket. So there are all kinds of options available here. Yeah, so basically AWS IoT integrates with a lot of other AWS services. Um, that's what you get here. Okay, so what's the pricing model uh, for IoT Core? Um, you, you pay per message. Um, that's, that's pretty uh, cool, yeah. And from a scaling perspective, is there any limits how many messages I can send through that system? So it's not disclosed. So I, I asked uh, AWS support and they are not telling you how many messages it supports. But yeah, so it's not documented and it's not uh, disclosed uh, what the upper limit is. But very, I very think cool you can. thing. <laughs> so, so how should <laughs> I use a service where I don't know how many messages I can send to it? So please, AWS, update the documentation. That's really annoying. Um, yeah, so it's, um, I think for most use cases, it, it will work. And if you have like really big use mm. cases, then you, you should uh, contact your need AWS. To, yeah, um, need to check that before, people <laughs> before yeah. building everything. Okay, cool. Um, so Michael, I have seen that you have created a cool, very cool comparison table comparing all those services that you have been talking about through. I think this is really something you have to, uh, it's really hard to, to talk about it in a podcast, but it's a really cool thing um, to have a look at. So we will add a link to the CloudCraft blog post um, where we will find the table that really compares the different services in, in a lot of categories, basically. So I think this is very helpful when you create an architecture and you want to decide um, which messaging services fits our needs um, yeah, so that's definitely something that I check out. So there are many dimensions where I compare the different services. And so, yeah, that's one way to figure out which one is the option that, 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 that is best for your use case. Is, is there anything that, that we need to talk about that we haven't yet? So is there any category or criteria that we haven't uh, talked about yet? Or is that uh, already covered? Yeah, so I think the, 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 the things that we have not talked about is um, the like encryption uh, features, for example, but basically you can say that all of them support uh, encryption uh, in transit and at rest. There's only one exception, um, but yeah. So you can expect like from like what you expect usually from AWS services that there's like high quality services with all the security features built in, including encryption. And that that's true for all the messaging uh, services. So that's that's fine, yeah. So yeah, I think we we have talked about um, everything that that is uh, related to messaging on AWS, which is quite a lot of stuff. Yeah, cool, Michael. So this was really a very good introduction and walkthrough through all the available services. And as always, I like <clears throat> your insights into 
um, the services from uh, a practical perspective. Because it's one thing to read through the marketing documentation from AWS, and it's the other thing to really have been using those services in the real world. So, um, yeah, thanks a lot for, for that and for talking us through um, the details here. Um, so there is um, one thing I want to say before we end this episode, and this is... Um, um, please subscribe to the Cloud on Out podcast wherever you listen to podcasts, for example, with uh, Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts to make sure you always get our latest episode um, to your um, mobile device. And um, we would also ask you to please share this podcast with a friend. So recommend it to uh, anyone who likes to learn about AWS uh, services and technologies. Uh, and last but not least, um, please send us feedback. You will find uh, links to Twitter, email address, and so on in the show notes. And also, if you leave a review in your favorite podcast player, that would be helpful as well. So thank you very much for listening. We will be back in two weeks. Bye. Thanks. Bye.